don't get the opportunity to observe elk 365 days a year. But I can look at cattle all the time and then I can think about, well, if that was an elk, what would it be doing differently, if anything? I felt hurt. Like, I felt personally affronted by the way this cow was talking to me. It's a bunch of small bugles close together, so it's like, ooh, 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 ooh. And what a bull is saying with a chuckle can be a couple different things. Throw your box of Cheez-Its at him and, and get him off the mountain. Otherwise, he's just going to cause problems for you. These things are huge. Like, yeah, man, I was trying to tell you that. Don't listen to a caller bugle and then try and imitate that caller. Listen to an elk. This is James Nash from Six Ranch Outfitters, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first puck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. <laughs> I shit you not, man. I'm the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Hartice, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the Interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey, y'all. So getting on to today's episode. Today, I'm sitting down with James Nash of Six Ranch Outfitters. I'm really excited to talk to you, James. Thanks so much for hopping on the line with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> well, True Pierce had some awesome things to say about you. And so I'm excited to have you on. One thing I always like to start out with is why don't you just give maybe a little introduction of generally who you are and how did you get introduced to the outdoors and hunting and all of this? Oh, geez. Well, my name is James Nash and I grew up here on the Sixth Ranch in Northeast Oregon. And this ranch has been in my family since 1884. So we've been raising, <laughs> wow. raising beef here now for six generations. And it, it's been, it's been a huge, huge blessing to kind of be a part of this and to have the generational knowledge that's come down to me uh, and then ways to sort of come up against modern problems and, and figure it out. But growing up on a ranch is, is just a tremendous opportunity as a kid. And 
there was little separation growing up between, you know, what would be considered outdoor recreation and what is considered to be actual ranching. So there's, there's more similarities than you might think between agriculture and hunting. And I've been able to use a lot of that to my advantage. So I went to high school, um, junior high, all that here in Northeast Oregon. I lived in Norway for a year when I was in high school and I went to a junior college there, um, learned to speak Norwegian. I, I competed on the Norwegian national wrestling team and got to travel around Europe doing that. It was a really good time. And then I came back from my senior year and was trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to go do next. I applied for some military academies. I got into them, but opted to go to uh, Montana Western instead. And I was on the rodeo team there. I did a bunch of fly fishing, a bunch of hunting. It was an awesome place. They had a gun room in the dorms. You could bow hunt on campus. It was the trout fishing capital of the universe. Really good experience and opportunity for me there. I got a degree in literature and writing. And when I was done with that, I went into the Marine Corps as an officer and I served as a tank officer for five years. I was wounded a couple times in Afghanistan, um, received uh, two Purple Heart medals from that and was medically retired and spent about a year and a half at the Wounded Warrior Battalion in North Carolina before I was eventually fully retired. And then I moved home and kind of found out that I wasn't physically able to do the ranch work that I was used to doing. So I started in an outfitting business and I'd been guiding for a long time. I started guiding when I was 14 years old. So I knew, I knew the functions of it. I didn't really know the business aspect of it, but I started with fly fishing and the business grew really quickly to um, incorporate land management and consulting and hunting and then brand ambassador work. And now the brand ambassador work is, is the bulk of what I do. And with COVID, I haven't been able to guide at all this year. So I've been working more on the ranch. I've been working on some of my other jobs and, you know, just doing everything thing that I can and hoping that we are still able to, to hunt this fall with, with non-residents and that'll have a fall hunting season. So you mentioned kind of, as we started talking that growing up on the ranch, there, there are a lot of similarities that you see a lot of crossover between, uh, between hunting and agriculture and, and all of that work. What's some of, what's some of that crossover that you see? Well, there's a section of river that runs through this ranch and, and we've done a couple big river restoration projects on it where we actually created a new river channel that would be ideal habitat for trout, salmon, and steelhead. And then we moved the water into that new channel. So doing that, that real world conservation work for a long time has been really enlightening to help me understand the, the biology and the ecosystem of of that aquatic environment for the Salmonids. But we also raise a type of cattle called Coriannis, which are uh, basically a wild cow. You know, they're still wild in the mountains of Mexico today. They originated in Africa. The Moors brought them to Spain. The Spaniards brought them to South America. Um, and, and we raise them now. And we raise them really similarly to the way that um, the elk operate. So rather than calving in the wintertime, where most of the English breeds of cattle do, 
we calve at the same time as the elk. We're putting um, the bulls in with the cows, you know, more or less the same time that elk are rutting and then moving the cattle around to different portions of the landscape so that they're benefiting from similar vegetation that elk would be moving around and experiencing. So we're just using these, these biological models that have evolved and worked for eons to, you know, do it with a, with a wild cow. And, you know, the lessons that we get from that, I'm able to apply to hunting, especially to elk hunting in a lot of ways that may seem creative, but are more or less fundamental to agriculture. So now I absolutely have to hear about some of these, some of these things you've learned from, I mean, it's, it makes sense, but it's like, it's such kind of a random, random insight, but I guess you see a lot of, you'll see a lot of similar behaviors, right? Yeah. And elk are bovines um, and cattle are bovines. So if you put cattle in a situation where they have to sort of fall back on their genetics and instincts to survive, then the behavior that you see from them becomes very much aligned with the behavior that you see from other bovine ungulates. And, you know, you can make more sense of it. We don't get the opportunity to observe elk 365 days a year. It's, it's a special time when you can see them, but I can look at cattle all the time and, and understand why a cow is doing a certain thing. And then I can think about, well, if that was an elk, what would it be doing differently? If anything, but with elk, we're, we're focusing a lot on bulls, right? So I have pastures that are just bulls for most of the year, unless they're broken out so that, you know, a bull gets, you know, 20 cows to himself or whatever, similar to the way a bull elk would get a harem of, of cow elk. But when they're in pastures of all bulls, they, their behavior is really interesting and it sort of acts like a bachelor group of bull elk. And I'll give you an example of something that, that I learned through a lot of frustration. I could look at this pasture of moo cow bulls for weeks and they'd be out there spaced out in the field, grazing, sleeping, seeming very at peace with each other. And then if I rode a horse into that field to move them to another pasture, they would immediately start fighting. And it just drove me crazy. And I hated bulls. They were so frustrating. They'd end up breaking fences and causing all this damage um, I was like, you guys just got along for weeks, you know, and then I ride in here and now you're fighting. What's the deal? And my dad said, um, well, they're doing that because you just force them into each other's territories and now they have to reestablish dom- dominance. It's like, oh man, I wonder if bull elk are the same way. So I started testing these theories and figuring out that, yeah, if I act like a bull elk and move in on a bachelor group and I can force them into a situation where they have to reestablish dominance, that's going to result in an encounter. And that's what we're trying to get. Like, come fight me. Um, Come check me out. Come see what this situation is. So that was just an example of something that I was able to transfer from what I was seeing in cattle and then put it to work with elk and then, you know, be able to kill elk as a, as a product of it. That's really interesting. It's, you know, it's seems kind of like stuff that makes sense, but you tend to, to look over when, when you're out in the field and you're, you're all pumped up and chasing those bugles. You're not thinking about exactly what's going on in those elk's head at that point. Yeah. You know, why, why are they doing what they're doing? That's, that's what you have to think about. And then when you can start 
answering that question in different situations, then their, their behavior can become more predictable. And that's really what, what hunting is. It's not just wandering around looking for a situation. It's about making it an educated guess about what the situation is going to be. And then putting yourself in a position where you can, where you can interact with it. So have you had any, uh, do you maybe have any examples kind of in the field then where you've been, you've been out, you've been hunting and you've been put in a situation and you think back to either kind of what we just talked about, or maybe some other learning you've taken away from, uh, from watching the cattle where you've maybe changed a tactic or, or adjusted what you were doing based on, on something specifically you may have learned from, from your agricultural background. Yeah, I can give you sort of a, a reverse engineered example from a couple of years ago. Um, I was working on a bull with a client that was um, about 80 yards away from us. And he was on the other side of a, a road and the road was actually cut down in. So it had berms like, you know, three or four foot berms on each side. And then on these berms were tight lines of lodgepole pine. So there wasn't very much um, visual capability between us and the elk. There was a little bit of looser timber on my side. And then there was a, like a quarter acre or half acre clearing that the elk were in. And there was a, there was a six point bull and then a couple raghorns and a spike and like half a dozen cows. And the cows were mostly feeding. Um, one of them was getting close to estrus based on what I was seeing but there wasn't any active breeding and chasing going on at that moment, but the bulls were definitely excited. I wanted to hook up the six point bull and I was close enough that I was able to, to interact with him in a way that he really felt like he needed to come confront me about it. But there was a couple of physical barriers in there. Um, so I was working just the bull sounds, just the bull sounds, um, and trying to escalate the situation a little bit. And he was plenty rattled, but he wasn't going to go through that, that tight lodge pole berm across the road through another tight lodge pole berm and come over there. So, you know, you just go into your bag of tricks and you're like, what else, what else do I have? A fight isn't going to do it. So I'm going to offer him some sugar. So I just gave him a couple, just sweet, nice, non-confrontational, not even necessarily invitational cow calls. Just wanted to let him know, hey, there's also a cow over here so that if you win this fight, you know, there's something in it for you. And when I did that, that bull hooked up and it looked like he was going to come. But one of those cows got mad and she basically yelled at me. Um, it was a cow sound that I'd never heard before. It sounded like an estrus buzz a little bit, which I don't think is a real thing, but she was being really, really aggressive in the way she was calling back at me and she left. And when she left, so did the other cows and so did all the bulls. Now my takeaway from that, um, and I, I felt hurt. Like I felt personally affronted by the way <laughs> this cow was talking to me. If I had scared her, um, if my sound hadn't been right, you know, she wouldn't have made a sound. She would have just left. But she was not wanting another cow in that area. If I buy a moo cow and want to add her to the, to the herd that I currently have existing, I can't just throw her in there with these other cows because they'll, they'll run the hooves off of her. 
So what I have to do is put her in the pen next to them so that they can get nose to nose with each other, get comfortable with each other for a couple weeks, and then I can move her in there. So that was something that I, I already knew from the bovine side of the house. Like cows don't necessarily like other cows. They don't like a new cow coming into the herd. Um, cause there is a competitive aspect to everything in their life. There's only so much food. They want the attention of a bull, whatever. So in, in that case, that was something that I made a mistake with, with the elk. Um, and it was something that I already knew from cattle. And once I made the mistake, I was able to put it together. Now, I don't know if I can replicate that scenario again, but I do know that if I see something similar to that, I'll be much more cautious about using that cow sound. If it seems like there's a cow around that, you know, might be persnickety about that. How would you, how then do you think you would have uh, looking back if you're put in that situation again, how would you do things differently? What, what would your tactics be this time around? Um, I'd probably try and create a vacuum and, call i'd leave my hunter there and then i'd call away from that bull and you know kind of get weaker as i went away from him in my bugles and then once i had an offset of you know say 250 or 300 yards then i might do a breeding sequence as if that bull had left and then ran into some other cows so that there wasn't an immediate threat and maybe then that bull would have felt more comfortable coming across and giving my hunter a shot okay so Kind of like a, the, the, the party's moving away. So it's not like a, you're not pissing off the cows because new cows aren't, aren't suddenly busting in going after their bull, but it's still enough to where that bull's aware that stuff, that stuff's going on and there's some, some hot cows in the area and he might be interested in going after them. Yeah. You know, just creating that, that fear of missing out for that elk you know, that that's a powerful motivator for all kinds of species. So, I mean, sticking on the topic of elk, what are maybe some, some tips you got, say somebody's, somebody's going out into the woods. Uh, you know, we all know about your basic location bugles for picking up locations on elk. What are maybe some of your other techniques if they're not necessarily responding to that location bugle for, uh, for picking up initial locations and finding elk? I almost never start with a location bugle. Um, that's, that's sort of a last resort to me. Okay. Because it's, it's, a bugle is more aggressive than other sounds that you can make. Um, early season, one of the most powerful things you can do is rake. And raking is something that you can almost not get wrong. I carry an antler to rake with because the acoustics are much more natural than using a stick. Um, do not use your bugle tube. That sounds terrible, but raking is a really, really aggressive thing. And if you can do it close to another bull, he has to confront you about that. So raking is a good way to actually start, start out trying to locate a bull. And if you have a bull that's close by and you start with a location bugle, you've tipped your hand in a lot of ways that aren't really necessary. And you've started at a level that is difficult to continue to escalate from. So raking is a good way to start. Cow calls are a tremendous way to, um, to locate elk. Calf calls, if you're in open country, are even better. So a calf calls higher pitched than a cow call. That means that, you know, you can make it plenty loud. Calves are loud as hell. So you can make that calf call really loud and really high pitched, and you can do a few of them. And bulls bugle at calves all the time. 
So that's a, that's a good non-threatening way to uh, see if a bull's in an area and then chuckling, man, chuckling is great. And you can chuckle and chuckle and chuckle, take a break, chuckle and chuckle and chuckle, rake a little bit, chuckle and chuckle, just keep doing it. And that's one of those things that I've, when I am just confident that there's a bull there, you know, sometimes I've spent 15 minutes doing it. And then all of a sudden it's like, now he's up, he can't take it anymore. And here he comes. So, uh, what kind of, in you know, for those that have no idea what a chuckle is, I know you probably don't have a call on you, but how would you describe a chuckle? Like what kind of a call is it? Like, what are you saying with the chuckle effectively? Um, chuckling is, is a bunch of small bugles that are close together. And, you know, I could probably find a call within a couple of seconds here, but it's, it's a bunch of small bugles close together. So it's like, and a lot of times it's at the end of a bugle. Sometimes it's at the beginning. A lot of times it's all on its own. And what a bull is saying with a chuckle can be a couple different things. If you're calling a bull in and he starts chuckling, that tends to mean that he's nervous and that he wants to see you. He wants some, some kind of a visual affirmation of what he's getting into. So a lot of times a bull will come up, come to a hangout point and he'll stand there and he'll look and he'll look and he'll look and he'll look for something to see because elk don't hide from other elk. That's a great time to be able to have a decoy out there. But if you get a bull that's hung up and he starts chuckling, he's nervous. Um, so that's a good time to chuckle back at him and say, hey, I'm nervous too. Why don't you show yourself? And then there's other types of chuckling that are just a little bit playful, a little bit vocal, and they do it at wallows a lot. And they're not trying to communicate over a really large distance, which isn't necessarily to their advantage. If they're not trying to call in other cows, you know, they might just feel like vocalizing and not carrying that sound over a huge area and bulls will chuckle at wallows a lot. So that might wallows are, are a big social experiment with elk. You know, their behavior is wildly different at a wallow than it is other places. They'll roll around and they'll jump up in the air and spin and ninja kick off to the side and just do goofy stuff. And there's so much scent there. I think that they get a little bit overwhelmed by how they're stimulated by that. So yeah, chuckling can mean a few different things. If, uh, if an elk barks at you, then you can bark back and you can kind of turn that into a chuckle. Eventually a bark is, is sort of a threat. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm kind of scared right now. I'm trying to alert other elk in the area. So you can, you can bark and then turn that into a chuckle. And if you can turn that other bull's bark into a chuckle, now you're getting him more comfortable and you can escalate back into bugles and then maybe turn that into a confrontation. So say somebody is, is getting their start in elk calling and, you know, they probably want to kick it off, learn their, you know, learn the basics, how to use the read, all of this stuff, the learn the, the basic cow calls, learn how to do an initial bugle and use that, that bugle too. But what are maybe some, some really valuable sequences? Where should they go from there? Some like, okay, I can make, I can make cow calls 90% of the time. I can, I can bust out a serviceable bugle. What I want to kind of improve my skills now. Where do I, where do I go from here? Don't try and get fancy. Be brilliant in the basics. Uh, there was a, a wrestler named Kale Sanderson uh, a few years ago who was a four-time national champion. Tremendous wrestler. One of the best this country's ever produced. And everybody knew that Kale was going to try and ankle pick when he was 
when he was on his feet. It didn't matter like that, that ankle pick was coming, but he was brilliant in it and nobody could defend against it. If you are brilliant in your cow calls and brilliant in your chuckling and brilliant in a couple really basic bugles, you're good to go. Like that is all you need. Don't try and get fancy. Try and get better at what you already have in your quiver. So, you know, learn your bugle, learn maybe how to inflect that a little bit differently. So I like to play videos of actual elk bugling. So don't listen to, don't listen to a caller bugle and then try and imitate that caller. Listen to an elk. Use, use the instructor that, that is the real full-time professional. You know what I'm saying? Be good at what you're already doing. It, it doesn't have to be fancy. Okay. So pretty much really just focus in on those cow calls, your chuckle, kind of an initial bugle, any, any other of the basics that I, that I'm missing out on? No, I mean, I, I can run the whole season with three different inflections of cow calls, one inflection of a calf call, two different types of bugles and a bark and a chuckle. So that's, that's it. That's my, my whole year. And I mean, I'm, I'm out there a lot, you know, I, I hunt the entire season, every single day of it. And if I'm not guiding, I'm hunting personally. So I might go through 10 reads in a season. Um, and then I'm, I'm practicing all year long as well. So it's not that I'm, I'm trying to get this big dictionary of, of words. I'm just trying to get really good at, at a handful of them. And that's my baseline. And, and you can do anything you want with that. There's a time to be able to imitate another bull. Um, and I'll go into that a little bit. So if you're trying, if you're dead set that you want to kill a herd bull, it's really difficult to give him an incentive to leave a herd. But there will be times when you can find a satellite bull that is really under his skin. And if you can do that, then, then you can go in there and you can sound like that satellite bull and that herd bull is going to be like, hey, I, I told you once, I whooped you once, now it's coming for real. So sometimes you just have to find an elk that, that you can sound like and then go in there. Because if you're in an area that doesn't have a lot of elk or it's not a very, it's not a population that migrates a lot, they know each other's voices. So, you know, I don't necessarily need caller ID when a buddy calls and says, hey, what's up? I know who called me, right? They know each other too. So sometimes you need to be able to sound like a specific elk. And that goes for both cows and bulls. And that just comes with, with mastery of making, making these sounds. And it doesn't mean that you have to make a really wide variety of sounds again. You're just trying to get brilliant at, at a couple of them. So say you're sitting down, maybe you're, you're at a good glassing spot and you've caught like a small herd of elk and you're kind of trying to figure out your move and you're seeing this bull chasing off a few of the satellites and you're able to kind of pick out how they sound trying, you know, whether it's maybe he, he drops off really quick at the end of his bugle or holds it out in a different way. Maybe if you can kind of add that to your bugling repertoire, you're much more likely to get in on that herd and get an encounter with that herd bull. Would that be a good summary of the idea? Yeah, a hundred percent. 
and you might have to run that satellite bull off. Like, you know, he's going to be downwind of the rest of the herd for the most part. So if you're coming in on the downwind side, you can come in and hook up that satellite bull and, you know, throw your, your box of cheese its at him and, and get him <laughs> off the mountain. Um, otherwise he's just going to cause problems for you. And then you're going to take his position, get in nice and tight, and then, you know, imitate his bugle and hope that that, that that herd bull is going to be like, all right, enough, enough of you. I like that. I like that a lot. That is like, that is one brand new tactic that I don't think I've heard anyone mention, but it's a really a brilliant way to get in on a, herd bull with a lot less suspicion it's less shocking and he's already probably gets him just riled up that much quicker he's he's already gotten past step one and he's to about step six at this point with this bull i imagine yeah yeah the 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 oven's preheated um so just go with that boat trader america's largest boating marketplace offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're out hunting effectively every day of the season. You're guiding quite a bit of it. Do you get, mostly when you're guiding, do you get a lot of new hunters? Do you get a lot of folks that have uh, extensive experience? What do you, what do you kind of see typically uh, when you take folks out? Um, I get a mixed bag. So I have hunters who have a lot more hunting experience than, than I have. Um, mostly because they're a lot older than me and I, I rely on them quite a bit. So I'm not going to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm the guide, you know, this is how we're going to do things. So if there's a guy that's killed 25 elk with a bow in his life, I'm, I may be the expert with the elk in this area and, and in this situation, but it's definitely going to be a conversation between me and that client about how we're going to go about doing things. And I'm fully willing to learn from these guys <laughs> and, and love to. And then I get a lot of people who are completely brand new and I, I donate trips um, every year to people who, who have never hunted before um, or have hunted and they've never been, been successful in any way. And I, you know, I just consider that, you know, sort of a, a moral obligation that that we have as hunters is to be able to continue educating people and sharing this experience so that more folks out there can understand what it is that we're doing because hunting, you know, is, is constantly under the, this shadowy sort of Damocles thread of, of not existing anymore. So um, that's, that's it. I, I see the full, the full spectrum of people, but for, for the most part, the simplest way that I can answer your question is most hunters that I encounter as a guide have experienced primarily hunting whitetail, um, some, someplace else, typically out of a tree stand and, and elk is a fairly new game to them, especially um, calling elk on the ground and doing this guerrilla warfare style of, of elk hunting. I like it. I like that description of it. Gorilla, gorilla warfare style of hunting. Uh, Cause it, I mean, it really is a, this, that's kind of what spot and stock is compared to a, maybe a tree stand or, or some of, some of these other styles of hunting. So I, I really like that description, but so you see a lot of different types of hunters, I guess, you know, you have these, these guys that sometimes have more experience than you 
you see a lot of guys that come from the whitetail world, maybe back east, and then you probably you have a handful of guys that maybe have never been on a hunting trip in their life or are, are self-taught and just what are maybe some of the different types of common mistakes you see as these different types of guys come out and what are maybe some of the discussions you have with someone uh, after you've kind of seen how they, how they function in the woods in the elk woods. I see a lot of rigidity in thinking where people will, will fall back on tactics that worked on a different species in a different location, um, tactics and gear both. And they're, they're highly confident in that. So, you know, they may have killed 50 white-tailed deer with a, with a rage hypodermic. And they're like, this system works great. My arrow weighs 320 grains. It goes, you know, 491 feet per second. And I have, you know, a bow that's 24 inches axle to axle. And, um, you know, th- this, this is an awesome system. And then the, I, I try to tell them like, Hey, that that's probably not going to work. Um, it would take a, a very perfect shot for that to all come together. And if there's any margin of error, then it's not going to work at all. And people have a hard time believing that, that an elk is different from a deer and they don't understand how much more animal is actually there when they're dealing with an elk. So when I tell them, Hey, you can take the biggest whitetail buck you've ever seen and you can wad them up in a ball and fit them inside the chest of a big bull elk. They're like, no, you can't. Like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, if they shoot one, they walk up to it and they're like, these things are huge. Like, yeah, man, I was trying to tell you that. Um, this is my profession. So it, it's great to be humble as a client and ask your guide and, and feel free to, to fall back on the knowledge that you have going into it and leverage that to the best of your ability. But also don't let it blind you to the nuances of how things are changing. And even if you're just changing locations, like Idaho elk, I'm 40 miles from Idaho. I hunt elk very differently in Idaho than I do in Oregon um, because they just have different pressures. They, they've had a different life experience. So it's kind of like uh, being a soccer player, going to a football stadium and saying, oh, I already know. I already know how to play this game. It's, just, it's exactly the same. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there might be some tactics you you know, that could translate, but it's a different sport. Right. Or even if like, let's say you're a, you're a rugby player from Vermont and you go and play rugby in Australia, you're going to die. Right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a different game, same game, but it's going to be played differently. And if you think you can step into it, you know, wearing a pastel polo, you're wrong. <laughs> I'll give you that. That's a much better, much better comparison. Um, but so maybe what are some of then also the, what you see from folks that are brand new to all of this. So maybe, maybe you're taking out a, a vet that's never been hunting before, or, uh, you know, someone, someone that's brand new kind of what, uh, what expectations do they kind of bring to the field with them versus, versus the reality? I try to talk about that at the beginning of a trip and I'll ask people how they define success and then I'll drive the trip towards that. So if that's just, you know, experiencing the woods or, you know, if they want to learn more about role casting or, you know, they really 
they just want to throw dry flies and they're not, not really concerned about whether they're going to catch fish or not, or, you know, they just want to see elk or they just want to spend some time in a tree stand and chill out and be away from their cell phone. Whatever it is, I can drive the trip towards helping them achieve that experience. And I don't want to take my definition of success and, and put that on them. However, some people have completely unrealistic expectations and they'll come up and they're like, you know what? I want to shoot a 400 inch bull. I go, okay, buddy. Um, me too. We don't have any of those there. That's not, that's not going to happen. So that's the time to sort of squash, um, bad expectations and, people tend to be pretty honest with you if you ask what their expectations are and, and how they define success. Um, some people are not, and those are the folks that are not honest with themselves either. And that can be really challenging as a guide. If somebody's not being honest with them, with their self, you know, you don't really have, have any idea where, where to drive that experience and, and how to help them be happy. So say this year I'm, you know, looking to, looking to book a trip with a guide, you know, maybe I've, I've gone out a few times on my own, or maybe I'm a whitetail hunter, whatever, whatever it may be, just a little bit of experience. And, uh, if you could, if you could maybe break down like a few things that you wish everyone knew before going on a, on a trip with you, you're just like, Oh my gosh. I'm just sick of having to say these things or remind people of these things. What would your like, okay, if you're coming on a guided trip, this is what you need to know. Be. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely starts, starts with a client and I want them to be asking questions like, Hey, what should I expect for the weather conditions? What's your recommendations on camouflage and clothing? Um, what's your recommendation on boots what kind of arrows should I be shooting? What kind of distances should I be proficient at shooting? Things, things like that can really help somebody. Those are the things that they can kind of control at home, right? Those are the things that they can order and, and start working on. Um, I really want somebody showing up with, with high quality boots that are broken in. That's huge. And if they're used to walking to a white, white tail stand and wearing rubber boots and they're all about scent control, that's great, but that's not going to transfer into the elk woods very well. Because if you, you know, hike for, for three or four miles in the morning while you're trying to catch up with herd that's on its way to its bedding grounds and you're in lacrosse rubber boots, um, <laughs> you're, you're right. It's, it's just not going to work out very well, but there's a time when those lacrosse rubber boots are, are the perfect boot for the job. So you just have to think that through and, and talk about it. Otherwise, how would you ever know? Um, for me, I'm going to say, Hey, I want you to shoot the heaviest arrow that you can fire at 265 feet per second. So whatever, whatever compound bow you're shooting, if, if you're shooting a stick bow, that's a different thing. We're just going to shoot a 650 grand arrow, no matter what. Um, but if you're shooting a compound, you're shooting 50 pounds, you jack that arrow weight up until you're at 265. If you're shooting an 84 pound bow, jack that arrow weight up until you're shooting 265 and, and roll on from there. So that's, that's what I'm looking for, for an arrow and a bow. Um, I'm really going to try and talk people out of single pin sights because when you're calling in an elk, you range him, you dial your sight. That's, you know, two steps that you had to take right there. And then he moves. 
So now you're a full draw, you're guessing and you're gambling with an animal's life because you don't know the range anymore. It's a bad deal. So now do you have to let down, um, re-range, redial? It's chaos. Use a multi-pin site. Or if you're in a state that, that allows like a Garmin, then definitely use that site because that thing's freaking awesome. <laughs> um, I still want to check one of those out, man. Those things look, those things look kind of big and honky, but they look sick as hell. I gotta, I, I definitely want to pick one up if nothing else, just to try it out. And they're, they're a really great piece of gear. I've been shooting one for a couple of years. Um, I haven't broken it, which is a testament to its durability. Cause I break stuff a lot. That was going to be my question. Now that it's out, I was a little worried like a couple of years ago when it first came out, I was looking at him. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like the first time I dropped my bow down the, you know, face of a cliff, that's not, that thing's the first thing that's going to snap off. So I've been one to ask someone that's been using it for a while. So I'm not going to say that it's going to survive that, but a lot of sites won't survive that. Um, so last year I guided for the first, um, first four weeks of archery season. Then the last week I was taken off to be able to hunt for myself rode out into a wilderness area, horseback, um, got in there pretty close to midnight. And then like a hundred yards before camp, um, this, this horse that I was on tripped, um, I, I was wearing hiking boots, like an absolute idiot. <laughs> and my feet got hung up in the stirrups. The horse rolled over the top of me. The saddle horn went into my binos on my bino harness. And I had the bow slung over my back because there's really no good way to carry a compound bow on a horse. There's just not. And my, my site housing got knocked loose. So there I was sure enough in the wilderness, long way from anything. And, you know, had to bust out an Allen wrench and fortunately was able to get things back together. However, um, you know, that, that site, which was a very, very rugged site did not survive that. Um, so it is a weak point on the bow that really made me rethink um, trad bows for backcountry hunts. And I don't think that I would go into a sure enough backcountry hunt again with a compound bow. I think I'd bring my takedown recurve. Interesting. That's uh that's almost an interesting thought to where, you know, practicing, even if you do want to take your compound bow in practicing enough with a trad bow, maybe like a, a takedown trad bow that you can kind of pack down. So just in case, because yeah, a lot of the time, you know, I mean, how many stories have you heard about a guy going to put a, with a big old fixed blade broadhead going to put it on his, on his rest and just in a hurry and slashes his, his string or something happening, you know? Yeah. There's a million things that can go wrong. You know, if you, if you catch a stick in your cam and, you know, and derail your string or something like that, which, you know, I just saw it in an archer shoot in wide open desert a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it was a healthy bow and a confident shooter. And he fired a shot and his string came off. He's done. Like that hunt is completely over at that point. But with, uh, with a takedown recurve, you take the, the limbs off and everything rolls up with the arrows all in a tight little space. There's very little that can go wrong with that system. Another thing is that a couple of years ago, I wanted to know how far away people were actually shooting elk. So I put out surveys on a few different sites and I ended up getting 600 data points on the three distances that people had shot bulls at with archery tackle. 
and I averaged it all out and it came out to 23 yards. So the average shot on a successful bull elk was 23 yards across 600 data points. And when you think about, so you're not talking just to confirm, you're not talking like the distance people take shots on elk. You're talking about successful, successful kills, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, if you consider that a hunter only kills one elk every 10 years, then if you have 600 of those, you know, that's a lot, right? So this is a pretty large data set. And at 23 yards, I'm very effective with a recurve. And when I started looking at my own life and the elk that, you know, I was calling in that were actually getting killed, they're, they're doable recurve shots. Distance um, is not a big factor. Now, it, it is limiting because if you go much beyond that, you know, you're going to have to get closer. Um, so there's going to be there's going to be situations where you could kill that bullet 40 yards with a compound and now you've got a stick and a string and it's not going to happen. But if you have a, if you have a busted compound, yeah, you're definitely not shooting it. (laughs) Yeah. Now now you have to get within 28 inches so you can stab him. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, I got a 32, 31 inch draw, 32 inch draw. Jeez. My arms aren't that long. Um, I got a 31 inch draw. So, a little bit further away, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that seems possible. 31 inches on a bull. No problem. Yeah. No problem. Oh man. Um, no, I think it's, that's an interesting thing, especially if you're, you know, I mean, you're going in with, with horses or llamas and you're doing that like really far back trip. Why wouldn't you, you know, it's a lot of the times. Yeah. Okay. You know, you're hiking four miles in, four to seven miles in something like that. Yeah. You're wanting to go ultralight. You may not carry it, but it's still kind of the distance where you're like, it's going to really suck to hike back out and have to go to the bow shop, but it's doable. But especially, yeah, if you're, if you're going in 13, 14 miles, most likely you're probably taking horses or some sort of pack animal to bring your camp in with you. So why wouldn't, I mean, how much, how much do those take down bows? You know, maybe your whole, whole kit like that. How much would that weigh with a few arrows and, and all of that three or four pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, especially if you're pulling in a wall tent or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not even thinking of it as a redundant system. I think that it would be a replacement for my compound on a backcountry hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I'm definitely not quite there yet. I'm still, I'm still working on making sure I can consistently pie plate at 60 yards, but, uh, <laughs> with my compound. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've been wanting to pick up a, pick up a recurve and practice with that. And so I think, I think for me starting out, it would be a redundant system, but who knows? I'm still working on elk number one. So okay. we'll, uh, we'll get there. Uh, do you have an, do you have an elk hunt for this year? I do. And, uh, you're probably going to hate me for it. Everyone does. Uh, I drew Arizona strip on three points. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I'm excited. I'm going, I'm going guided this year. I will not, uh, I was, I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not going to let pride, uh, spoil an Arizona strip tag for me. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I've learned a lot and I've had a chance to talk to some amazing people. As we were talking earlier, this is, you know, 
this is the whole reason I started the podcast was to get to talk to guys like you that know significantly more than I do, have a lot more experience than I do and learn from them. You know, the podcast isn't, it's a little bit about sharing, sharing about myself, but it's more about me getting to ask questions from guys like you. And so I've learned a ton over the past, you know, three years, three, three and a half years that I've been running this. I've gotten to talk to some of the smartest, most successful elk hunters <laughs> around, you know, and, uh, but that definitely does not replace time in the field and it never will. And I've seen a lot of success coming up through my different elk seasons. Um, and I say success because I talk about it all the time. And it's like what we were talking about even earlier is defining what success means to you. Is it just getting time away from your cell phone? Is it seeing elk? Is it drawing on elk? Is it harvesting a bull? Is it harvesting a herd bull? You know, there's so many different things. And, uh, through my trips, you know, the first one was a very special, unique trip. Uh, that is a whole story that most everyone's heard in and of itself. It was a, it, as disastrous as it could be, uh, and still come out alive. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, since then I've really learned to gauge my measures of success. And I consider every year that I've been out to be a huge success, especially this last year, I finally started getting into elk. I got to draw on a few, I got to loosen an arrow that was completely misranged. You know, I got to make mistakes and scare away bulls and, and it was amazing. I spent six weeks just causing a ruckus in Montana. And so this year though, I'm really excited. I'm going with John Stallone. Um, and I'm just really excited to, to go out and I'm, I'm working my ass off so I can do my part and, and actually be able to shoot straight. And I'm excited to see what happens and hopefully, uh, hopefully take home my first bowl and have it be a big ass Arizona strip monster. So we'll see. I'm excited for you. I can't wait to see what you turn up. It's going to be a great experience. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Good job. But Thanks. you know, don't, it seemed like there's like a, an edge of shame in, in getting a guide. Uh, there's so much like crazy emphasis on DIY and public land right now, dude. I, I I've guided now for 20 years, right? Um, started when I was 14 years old. If, a hunter is not capable. They're not going to kill anything. There's, there's nothing that I can do. So I can help and I can help with logistics and calling and knowledge and things like that. But there, there are very few times when, when luck happens, it, it is the rarest of occasions. So, you know, fortune favors the, the bold and the prepared, so if, if you've got skills and you're working at it and you go with a guide that can be a tremendous amplifier for, for your product, but, uh, man, don't, don't feel bad about going kite. Oh, yeah. Like I would totally get a guide if I drew that tag. Yeah. I don't know anything about the Arizona strip. And I didn't, I didn't mean at all to insinuate that there was like, that I was ashamed of doing that. For me, a lot of it has been like, there's a little bit of an element of pride in it where. I know that the likelihood of me being successful on my own is, is little to none, but there's that element of pride in, I want to go and like a lot, there's a lot of ego, a lot of like, not, not 
good pride, the kind of bad, like, yeah, no, I'm prideful about doing this, wanting to do this myself. There's a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to insinuate there's anything bad about a guide. I'm just saying, I'm not going to, I refuse to let that pride ruin this hunt for me. So I'm definitely going guided because it's the smartest way to be successful. And I'm lucky enough that John's a buddy. And so not only do am I going guided, I get to hunt with a friend as well. So it's like that double, double whammy right there, which is great. But what arrow are you shooting? Uh, I'm shooting, uh, actually, do I have one right here? I'm shooting an Easton axis. It's got a, got a vein wrap three, uh, three of the boning heat veins. I've got a 25 grain collar on it and I'm shooting hundred grain sever broadheads. The, uh, the two point ones, something like that. Uh, and I mean, I've got, I've got like between a, it's between a 30 and a half and 31 inch rots. It's somewhere in that range. And, uh, so you're shooting really fast. Yeah. I'm shooting pretty fast. I'm hitting, I'm shooting 70 pounds and those, uh, I want to say all in all, they're just over 600 grains, all of that together. My, my whole arrow something like that. I I'm, I'm a little brain dead right now. So I'm, I want to say it's like 603 grains. Some somewhere right there. Probably, probably just over 500 grains. Maybe um, I'm stupid. Yeah. 500 sounds better. <laughs> yeah. Probably just over 500. You've got to do some weird stuff to an arrow to get it over 600. Um, you gotta so, be Joe Rogan shooting arrows that are the size of Lincoln logs. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I shoot a 650 grain arrow at everything. Um, I don't care whether I'm hunting, you know, European starlings or, you know, if I was going to hunt grizzlies or Cape Buffalo, it'd still be a 650 grain arrow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say 500. Once you said it, I was like, no, I think he's right. I think it's a 500. It was just over that something hundred point. And so 500 sounds more reasonable, especially because those, those axis arrows are pretty skinny. Mm -hmm. It's the five millimeter five, four millimeter. I don't know, man. I don't know. Enough. I, I don't know enough about arrow construction for it to all stick in my head at all the time. Like I have to always go back and check it and, and all that stuff. I'm the first to first to admit I'm not an arrow expert, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly they not move pretty fast. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guarantee it's fast. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm jealous of your draw length. That's, it's like the great unequalizer is when tall dudes shoot bows. It's like, I can pull a hundred pounds and I can't, can't get performance like that. It's uh yeah, I can scratch my kneecaps without bending over. We'll just say that I'm not the <laughs> tallest dude, but I got gorilla arms and uh, it definitely, it definitely is a benefit. I remember my first deer that I shot um, a mule deer. He was a teeny little guy, uh, but a mule deer out in Arizona and I shot him. He, he was broadside and I drew and he kind of started like a soft quarter away. And as I loosed, he, that turned from a soft quarter into a hard quarter and he kind of jumped forward. And so I hit him pretty far back, but the angle I hit him in the back hip went all the way up through him and out through effectively. If you flipped him over, it looked like a perfect vital shot. Um, so I traveled all the way through him and still kept going another 30, 40 yards. And we, it took us forever to find the arrow because we didn't think it'd keep going that far. 
so suffice to say, I was pretty happy with my with my arrow setup. Uh, if it did that to a deer, I'm like, I think I'll, I think it'll do okay for for an elk, um, <laughs> as long as I don't as long as I don't shoot him straight in the shoulder. But uh, I mean, he'd probably be hurting if I did that. At least, yeah. I um, mean, more more weight is more better when it comes to arrows and elk. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I, that's one thing I really want to get into. I think that's probably going to be the next thing I really nerd out on is starting to test different arrow setups and veins and like take some time after this season to, to really fletch probably a six or seven different types of arrows and just see how they shoot and how I like them, how they hit that whole, that whole party. But I don't know. They're always, there never seems to be enough time. Always something, always something else to hunt. It's a rough life, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping when you're ready for your next system log on to midwayusa.com um so one thing uh i definitely would love to to ask you about and kind of switching up topics is uh you know you mentioned earlier and uh you're a veteran and you're medically retired coming out uh coming out of the military and you know, I've had, uh, I've had a, several vets on the podcast and actually one of my, I want to say it was like my fourth episode ever had some great conversations with, uh, the guys from operation pay it forward. Um, coming out of the military, how have you seen, I hear a lot of guys say that hunting sort of fills a, something that kind of disappeared once you once you moved out of the military, have you seen, have you seen evidence of that in your own life? Oh, definitely. And, you know, hunting is something that's always been there for me. Um, you know, I've, I've hunted my entire life. So it was something that was missing while I was in, while I was in the military and something that I could get back into once I was out. But yeah, there's, there's definitely things that you get from, from all aspects of hunting, that, that do replace some of what you had in the military that you can't find in other places. And some examples of that are like the type of camaraderie you get with other hunters. That's not a normal relationship. A hunting buddy is, is a different type of friendship than other friendships that you have than any other friendship that you have. And then your ability to really focus when, when you're, when you're part of an environment and, all of your senses are kicked on and you're completely alert. That is similar to the way um, you can experience some aspects of combat where there's nothing else going on in your world. You're not thinking about next week. You're not thinking about taxes. You're not thinking about anything other than what's happening right now. And um, if you're, if you're working up a bull elk, you're not thinking about anything else in the world. You don't have the bandwidth for it. So you have complete and total focus and even just a few moments of that can give somebody tremendous relief from some really invasive thoughts that might be plaguing them, you know, might be a shadow in every other aspect of their lives. And, and that relief can turn into 
a rung on the ladder that you can step onto. And, you know, you might fall off of it, but you can move back there and then continue climbing that ladder until you're sort of out of these, these dark depths and in these inky places that your mind can go. Um, if you, if you have the space for those, for those dark thoughts to come in there. So I think that people, they, they find a lot of, a lot of relief in the woods and, and fly fishing is much the same. I know you fly fish a little bit, man, if you're, if you're throwing dry flies or if you're nymphing or something like that, it takes all the focus that you have. You don't get to think about anything else because it's, it's all consuming. So I think that, that those are a couple aspects of it that, uh, that a lot of people appreciate. And I work really hard to continue um, getting, getting veterans in the woods and, and out on the water. Um, and it's been a big part of my, you know, I say business, but I've never charged anybody for it. So I just take the money that I make from paying clients and then find ways to turn that into opportunities to take out veterans and make sure that they get a good experience. So, um, I would love maybe for you to even elaborate on that. Just, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to support what you're doing, if somebody's like, I love that idea, or maybe it's a, a vet that found themselves, uh, you know, found hunting found fly fishing, found the outdoors and, has felt a lot, found a lot of relief in that. And they also want to get involved in something like that. What's the best way for someone to be part of, of helping vets as they're coming out and uh, wanting to get in the outdoors? Well, the, the knee jerk reaction is to go through some type of organization, like go through a nonprofit that's already kind of set up and has the infrastructure to do that. And I've been a part of a few of those, Mostly, um, it hasn't been good experiences, but a couple of times it's been tremendous. So I'm on the board of a nonprofit for a, a, fe- a pheasant hunting operation for uh, Purple Heart recipients in Iowa. Um, and that's, that's a great one. And Wishes for Warriors, a friend of mine runs that one. And I think they've done more work for veterans than anybody. So if you just want to if you just want to support something, um, you know, it, it takes money to make those things happen. So you could support one of those organizations. But what I do personally is I just say, Hey man, want to go fishing? You know, you want to, want to try and kill a goose. Do you like, you like eating goose? Like, <laughs> let's go. Um, and then there's no fanfare. There's no, there's no dinner. There's no like ceremonial showing people off and, you know, feeling pressure and like you're under the spotlight it's just like, hey, let's go try and catch fish. And it, it's really as simple as that. I took a guy out a couple of years ago um, and we, you know, we, we fished for, for five or six hours on the boat and pulled up the dock. And I said, hey, you know, just hold on to the boat for a second. I'm going to go get my pickup. And when I came back down, um, this dude was crying. And, you know, I am as uncomfortable as the next guy when I see another man cry, right? It's not a good feeling. So I was like, what the, you know, what did I do wrong? Um, and his friend uh, called me later and, you know, he was just overwhelmed by, by the experience of being able to take basically five hours away from, away from the, the problems in his life. And, 
you know, that gave him a little, little bit of space to release some emotions and, and it gave him, gave him a rung on the ladder to stand on and kind of move forward a little bit. And that's, that's huge. So it, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Um, it doesn't have to be successful, you know, however you define that. Um, just, just offer. And if somebody says no, then say, all right, cool. Well, I'm here for you if you need anything. That's awesome. And but, you know, another aspect of this that I want to hit on is like civilians don't owe veterans anything. You owe us nothing. Um, there's, there's no, there's no righteous entitlement. Like we've volunteered to serve and we did so for a variety of reasons. For me, I felt like I had a great life. I have, I live in a place that is a postcard in any direction that you take a picture. You know, I, I'm on a cattle ranch where, where I can produce really healthy food for other people and, and interact and engage with the environment in all kinds of ways. And it's just this awesome place and awesome community. I was like, this, this cannot be free. Like I've got to do something to earn this. I want to give back to the rest of my country. I was very idealistic in that. So the things that I did in Afghanistan, I don't know if they had any effect at all on my community and on this place. But as a, you know, 21, 22 year old guy, idealism can really sink hold and you can, you can feel like that's important. Now it is important to carry on a tradition of servitude and that can, can have really powerful benefits from you later on. But one of the really important reasons that we should be helping veterans is that they have a lot to contribute to our businesses, to our civilian infrastructure, to our communities. And if, if they're fighting their own battle still, and they just sort of, you know, become insular and they don't go out and aren't engaging, um, we've lost a really valuable member of the community in doing so. So it, it is rehabilitation, you know, it's getting somebody back to a point where they can contribute to the rest of society again. And that is why things like the, the GI bill that helps veterans pay for college, that's an investment. Like that's not, that's not a bonus. Um, it's not a thank you. Like that is an investment in our country's future so that we can educate veterans and take the skills that they have from the military and then be able to spin them in a way that benefits everybody else in civilian society. I think that's such an important distinction and, and you, you illustrated it so well that it's not, it's not a, like you said, it's not about doing these things because we owe you guys or out of, out of this misplaced necessity to pay you back the important reason. Well, one, it's important to do it just because be a good person for one yeah. <laughs> um, and help, help everyone. But uh, investing in someone, a, a lot of these guys are, are talented, smart guys with, skills that you know beyond anything else and they may not be in the best place at the time to then use those skills for the betterment of everyone but being able to help them out and bring them to a place where those skills can be used to better their lives to better other lives other people's lives 
it's, it comes full circle. It's, it's a bigger picture thing than just like, Oh man, you went overseas. So now I feel like I'm indebted to you. Yep. Yep. You're exactly right. Um, so that, that is, I really, I really like that perspective on it. So I do want to give you a quick chance. You run, uh, you run a podcast as well. Would love for you to give a quick plug for your podcast. Yeah, I have uh, the Six Ranch podcast, and it's all over the map between natural resources and just dudes telling stories and um, fly fishing and hunting and all kinds of things. So that's something that that I started this year with the encouragement of uh, some good friends. Cody Kellum was bugging me about doing it for a couple of years, and Cody Cody Rich helped me out with it a lot. Uh, a lot of people helped me. So that's been, that's just been a gas. Uh, it's been a lot of work as you know, but the conversations that you get to have are incredibly rewarding and being able to share those with other people is really rewarding too. Awesome. So where can folks find the podcast? I think it's just about everywhere. Um, yeah. So if you just search for six ranch podcast, you're going to be able to find it on one of the platforms that you listen, listen to podcasts on and, you know, if you want to follow more stuff, um, it's six ranch outfitters on, on Instagram. And that kind of shifts between being entertaining and being educational. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Social media is, is this thing that I never saw coming and it's hilarious to me that it's part of my life now, <laughs> but I, I do really enjoy it. And I live in such a rural and remote place that you know, I frankly wouldn't, wouldn't see people very often or interact with people if it weren't for this type of, of technology and capability. So I think it's a cool thing. I'm with you, man. Like a good majority of the hunts I've been on are solely due to social media in, you know, sometimes in a roundabout way, but one way or the other, it's like, these are connections I wouldn't have made. And, you know, I always tell people there's not, there's very few places now because of social media, there's very few places that I can't go and find a couch to crash on within, you know, a few hours. Yeah. So it's an, it's an amazing tool, but it can also <laughs> be a disaster. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. You know, you can do a lot of, a lot of damage with a hammer or you can use it to build a home. So exactly. All right. So one thing I always like to wind down with say, uh, you know, say you run into someone and you know, they find out you're, you're a guide and you love fly fishing, love hunting and, and they're talking to you and they're like, you know, I don't know, man, I'm from the city. I, you know, I don't know anyone that does this. I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, don't have any experience in the outdoors, but always sounded so cool, man. Like I just love the idea of getting out there and, and fishing and harvesting my own food and all of this, but there's, there's way too much to learn it's really intimidating and I don't know anything. I don't, I don't know if it's for me. What advice or words of wisdom would you give that guy? Well, I, I mean, I run into this all the time and I, uh, I used to joke that I adopted a hipster every year to uh, <laughs> teach them how to hunt. But my approach has been exactly that is to say, Hey, if you're interested in this, I'll, I'll help you every step of the way. And basically the last step that I'm helping them with is typically uh, grinding up meat and putting it in bags and sending them home with a cooler. But sometimes it's just getting an opportunity. 
It's like, Hey, you know, we went through every step. You got a weapon, you learned how to use it. We learned how to hunt, got you the tags, all that stuff. We went out and we did it. You know, you had a cow elk at 25 yards and, uh, and it didn't work out. You know, that's, that's it. Now you've had it. Now you've got the foundation, go out and learn on your own, start accessing these, these tremendous resources that are available for free everywhere and, and figure it out because I did not grow up with these resources and, and I figured it out um, largely on my own. My family is super tight lipped. Like I can't just go to my uncle and be like, Hey, you know where uh, any big bull elk are, you know, <laughs> Hey, how do you, how do you do this? You, you killed elk your entire life. You know, where, where should I go? You know, what, sh- what am I doing wrong? And he'd be like, what you're doing wrong is asking me about it. Go figure it out. <laughs> it's not like that anymore. Like We've got all these podcasts and books and we've got the internet and we've got phones that communicate with outer freaking space to tell you where you are in the world. It's a, it's an amazing time. Like just go do it. But it is intimidating. Regulations are super intimidating. People think that they have to have a license to buy a gun. Um, you know, they don't know how to buy a bow. They don't know where to go do it. They don't know to like what questions to ask. So a lot of what I've been doing in in my podcast is just trying to go through some of that stuff. So I've got a podcast on, you know, whether you need to buy a bow and once you've decided to how to go about doing it, um, you know, just look for these resources and understand that we exist today, every single one of us, because our ancestors were good at hunting. Like don't slap that in the face and think that it's too intimidating for you to get into right now. Like, please. It was harder than I promise. Um, you can do it. You really, really can. It's, it's like a Google search away or, you know, call seven people. You call seven people on any kind of a problem. You haven't turned up with a solution. You need better friends. <laughs> no, it's, the information's out there. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on the line with me today. Thanks so much, man. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned... No matter where I've been, white tails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.